That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Excited for this episode, and the guest that I have on today is uh, a bit of a girl crush of mine, a real inspiration. A couple years ago, um, I'd never heard of her, and she showed up at the ESPNW Summit, which is a big uh, three-day conference that we have every year in November, bringing together some of the uh, biggest and best minds in women's sports and athletics and agents and everything else. And she gave this amazing speech about uh, how she found her career, how she got started. She's a New Zealander and she wanted to work for Virgin back when uh, Richard Branson and it was just, I mean, the coolest and and biggest and best brand. Um, And she concocted this plan and, uh, you know, you'll hear it in the podcast, our conversation about it. Um, But I remember listening with such attention that years later, um, when she came back to speak again, um, then as the president of Equinox, she, I approached her and we chatted and I remembered almost word for word so much of the story that she had told because I was really inspired by her moxie and her approach. She's been in major higher up positions like president for companies like Nike, Gatorade, Equinox. She's now the CEO of Flywheel and she just wrote a book. And I was thinking as I was talking to her that even though we just kind of communicate on Twitter or I've been to a couple different panels or, you know, been to different conferences with her, um, she sort of is this through line of, of, of every time I reconnect or I think about her, she is this bold and brash and incredibly successful woman who I consider, um, someone to look up to and someone to kind of follow her lead. And it seems really simple, but it's so important who you surround yourself with and the people that you have around you on an everyday basis and the people that you look to for inspiration and for advice have a huge impact on the life that you live. I was just at a, um, an event tonight, just before recording this, um, where I was speaking to a a big room of people about, you know, some of my, some of my work and some of the things that I've gone through in, in being a woman in in sort of a male dominated industry and where I found my inspiration and and challenges that I came up against and being in a room full of, of super awesome, super badass women. Um, and alongside speaking alongside a woman who's been running a marathon on every continent in five straight days, she's insane. Um, it just reminded me that for a lot of people, the opportunity to be surrounded by great inspiration and, and super power empowering people might not be as common. And I think it's easier said than done, of course, but you really should take a moment to analyze the people that are, are around you, your friendships, your coworkers, and see if they're serving you or not. And if they're not, especially if it's a friendship, um, figure out whether they're still deserving of your time. And I think it's something as you get older and older, you start to realize that your time is limited, whether that's because you've got a family or, or work commitments or you're just t- more tired and you need to just relax a little bit more often. But who you're spending your time with and who you're giving your days to um, can really affect how, how happy you are and how successful you are. I, I was recently at a social engagement um, and I was forced to be around someone I don't really like. And I realized in the moment, the awkwardness of not really wanting to be around this person, that that rarely happens to me these days that I really have created this life around me where all of my friends are amazing. I I love my family. My coworkers are great. I don't have moments where I feel forced into interacting with people that I just flat out don't like, or that I don't feel are supportive or empowering or interesting. Um, And I trust me, I realize how lucky I'm in that. I don't think that that's the norm. Um, But if you find yourself consistently around 
negative people, people that don't empower you to be your best. Um, you don't have to. And I remember I was speaking, um, to someone just a couple years ago and they said their best advice was to figure out, you know, who your real friends are, who the people that are around you that make you a better person and to stick with them and be okay with saying goodbye to friends that aren't worth it anymore. Friends that don't make you happy anymore. You know what it was? It was Sarah Benincasa. If you guys go back on the podcast and listen to my podcast with her, um, she's a comedian and writer. And she said one of the biggest pieces of advice that she took and used is that idea of being okay with saying goodbye to parts of your life and people that fill the big role for part of your life if they no longer are positive. Um, and Sarah Rob O'Hagan, my guest tonight, just recently did a couple interviews promoting her new book. And one of her best pieces of advice was don't ever be afraid to get out of line. And of course, my mind immediately first goes to get out of line, like, you know, be difficult and, 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 you know, don't worry about conforming, you know, have a sailor's mouth and everything else. But what she really meant was don't be afraid to get out of line in terms of your career. If you feel like as soon as you step out of the path you're on, things are going to fall apart. So you just stay on the path, even if it doesn't feel right, you're really doing yourself a disservice and it can be scary, but she recently stepped out of that corporate world of moving from, you know, Nike to Gatorade to Equinox. And she took a step away for a while to research for her book and to figure out what was still driving her. And that part of that getting out of line allowed her to rediscover what it was about what she was doing that actually made her happy and how she could calibrate her life to get back to doing the things that she loved. Um, and I, I have a close friend whose husband's kind of in that same position where he's been working, working, working for so long that he doesn't even like anything that he does anymore, but he feels too scared to step out of it and lose the income and the support. Um, and it can be really risky, but if you don't ever get out of line, if you constantly follow the path that you believe you have to be stuck on to maintain a status quo or a certain income or whatever, you could be missing out on some much bigger and better opportunities. Um, you'll, I think, really enjoy this conversation with Sarah Rob O'Hagan. She talks about learning from failure of being fired. She talks about being willing to get out of line and what that actually taught her um, surrounding her life and her and her work with fitness and fitspiration. Um, and how you can be an extremer, which is not to overwork and hustle too hard, but instead to have a full life in ways that maybe some of us don't allow ourselves to. So I hope you enjoy the interview. It's next. That's what she said. That's what she said. So happy to be joined by Sarah Rob O'Hagan, named among Forbes' most powerful women in sports, recently one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. Uh, she has reinvented a bunch of brands that you know and love. She's worked with Virgin and Nike. She was global president of Gatorade, president of Equinox, now the CEO of Flywheel. And she's just written a book called Extreme You, Step Up, Stand Out, Kick Ass, Repeat. It's just hit bookshelves, and it is helping her promote a movement that she started called Extreme Living. So I'm so happy to have her joining the pod. And Sarah, I'm starting with the very thing that caused me to develop a girl crush on you years ago when you first came to the ESPNW Summit. So before we get to the book or any of the new stuff, I want to start way back uh, with the story that you told that involves a cruise ship, Richard Branson, and a young <laughs> New Zealander hoping to weasel her way into a gig working for Virgin. You are hilarious. My God, you've got I a memory. I love the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was in my mid-20s, and I desperately wanted to work for Virgin Atlantic, the airline, because obviously these were the big days of Richard Branson, the crazy entrepreneur, and how cool he was. And and uh, I couldn't figure out how to navigate my way there until I realized that the uh, chief marketing officer for Virgin Atlantic was going on this cruise ship 
because it was a marketing conference. So I was like, oh, perfect. I'm just going to sign up and go stalk her. I mean, who wouldn't, right? <laughs> so we go to the conference. We actually, I do eventually meet her. I get to know her. It was really great. We hit it off. And I end up getting offered a job, which was wild and cool, except for the fact that I moved to New York to take this job. So I'm like a little 26-year-old with very little money, maxing out my credit cards. And I turn up to work on my very first day and to be told that this woman who had hired me didn't work there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And it was honestly terrifying. Like I remember going to the bathroom just like – literally tears streaming down my face going what am I gonna do right. um but, well and not only know, that go, they didn't know you were coming right like not only did no. she not work there anymore but she hadn't told anyone that she hired you so now you've moved from New Zealand to New York and they don't even know who you are or why you're there yeah a little uh little disconcerting for sure yeah. but you know the, the funny thing was it's like in the end I you know asked to speak to HR and then the HR people obviously got my paperwork and figured everything out and and it all ended up being actually very good in the end because with this woman's departure, you know, that meant there was a real lack of leadership. So it was an opportunity to step up. But, geez, it was definitely scary. (laughs) That is for sure. Well, and I remember, if if I remember correctly, what happened was is that you you sort of said, well, I'd still like to work here even though none of you knew I was coming. And you slipped a giant list of things that you thought you could already fix about the company under the president's door? That's pretty much it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I actually realized about three. It was it was actually born out of fear, though, because I, I literally was so terrified that I was going to lose my job because no one knew me and, you know, no one had picked me to be there. So I remember about three weeks in realizing, OK, I got to put some ideas on paper. I got to figure out how to drive this business forward so that I'm adding value. And so I write this crazy marketing plan and an org structure and the whole thing. And I slip it under the president's door. And I do remember going, oh my God, did I really just do that? Like it was quite <laughs> like, what if he goes, you little smart ass, whatever, all the more mm-hmm. reason for you to be fired. But um, after about three or four sweaty days of waiting to hear back, I finally got the call from his uh, secretary and and I met with him and he was really excited by the plan and it actually led to me getting promoted believe it or not so um, it was definitely a good survival strategy yeah so when you were a young girl in New Zealand uh, just growing up what was the dream then was it always to move to the states and be in big business yeah, I would say no I didn't even know like I I mean let's be real New Zealand is a country of you know, almost 4 million people and 50 million sheep. I mean, it's at the bottom <laughs> of the world. It's a tiny little place. And New Zealanders are really fun people. And I think because we come from such a long way away, we tend to just swing really hard. And I didn't even know that, you know, big business was a place that I could go or end up. Um, but what I did know is that I was very adventurous and very ambitious. And I wanted, you know, my first job out of college was working in the airlines mainly because I was like my entire strategy was they will fly me out of the country you know (laughs) (laughs) and um and yeah so I kind of just took it one step at a time but I would say probably you know jumped on opportunities with a lot of gusto every step of the way that's for sure so I finally went to New Zealand this past fall for my honeymoon you did like the most beautiful place in the entire universe like just for sure so fantastic, but it's 
it's slow and it's it's wonderful because it's slow but i wonder yeah. i mean of course there's you know there's bigger cities and of course where i was visiting the intention was to relax and see beauty and not yeah. be working but it's so interesting to me to come from somewhere that small and that sort yeah. of placid and to decide yeah. that new york is a choice and at a young <laughs> age be okay being there on your own and starting something totally fresh i mean that sort of indicates to me that you were meant always to be in this lifestyle I yeah, but you know what I would say is because you are a hundred percent right. Like New Zealand is honestly one of the most perfect societies still existing on the mm -hmm. planet because they like live. Uh, what is this saying? They work to live. They don't live to work. You know, and I think people are smart. And they work hard, but they have a great lifestyle. Um, and it is a bit slower for sure. But it's funny. You also will find that I'm not alone. Like so many young New Zealanders, a big part of our growing up, actually, it's kind of a rite of passage is that after college, at some point, you're going to go and do what we would call your OE, your overseas experience. And <laughs> so I think a lot of us have this real kind of desire to explore and just see what the world has to offer and take it all on. So I, I think it's very, it's, it's almost like what I call the underdog advantage. Like we just come from such a small place that we're stoked to be anywhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I have a good friend who married a Kiwi and it's the same thing. He grew up on a farm with a bunch of sheep and now he's living in New York City working in really? you know, major, oh. finan major finance and trading and millions of dollars of deals. And it's just, it's funny to picture that big of a leap. But yeah, that seems to be, like you said, if it's a rite of passage, it makes sense. Um, yeah, totally. So I, I want to get to the current stuff, but I don't want to skip over everything in the middle. So, you know, the <laughs> elevator sort of pitch or the elevator story of of going from Virgin to Nike to Gatorade to Equinox, like these are all massive brands. And at what point after maybe Virgin did you realize that you wanted to veer towards like health and wellness and sport? Yeah. Well, I'd actually say that I grew up, um, I played tons of sports and um, I wasn't actually particularly good. Like I never made the A team. I was certainly not an elite level athlete of any description, but I just loved sports and I loved the teamwork. I just loved everything that comes with it. And I'm a very competitive person by nature. And so, you know, when I was in college in the 90s or late 80s, early 90s, when Nike was kind of becoming Nike and Michael Jordan was becoming Michael Jordan, like it was just a brand that spoke to me and a whole movement that just spoke to me. And so I had this real desire that I wanted to come to America. I wanted to work for Virgin because I was really inspired by Richard and all of that that he was doing. And Nike, those were the two brands I wanted to work for. And so I was very focused on making moves that would give me the experiences to eventually get there. And, you know, I interviewed for Nike actually earlier in my career and got rejected because I didn't have any sports experience. So I would go, okay, well, how am I going to get that? And, you know, I did a couple of side projects actually just helping out with people who were involved in sports um, events to give myself some experience. So I think it was very much like, you know, in some cases it was very planned and in other cases, you know, I got my ass fired twice for not for <laughs> screwing a lot of things up and that caused me to sort of bounce into places that I had to bounce out of. But, you know, in the end, I guess it all added up. It wasn't like I was planning all of these big brands and companies, but I certainly kind of landed there. What did you get fired for and what did you learn from oh. it? <laughs> 
Well, I got fired. So after the earlier story we talked about of me getting to Virgin Atlantic, where I did actually very, very well and had a great run there and, you know, got to meet Richard. Everything was incredible. And then from that um, experience, I got asked to move across to their music retail division. So Virgin Mega Stores back in the day, you know, we used to buy CDs from retail stores. How crazy is that? (laughs) And so I joined there division and uh the problem was this is right when napster came along you know it was the whole Mm. music industry was totally in disarray but um and it was a really like tough but incredibly important growth experience because i everything i knew from the airlines was not relevant this was a business in decline i was just stubbornly kind of doing what i used to do and not recognizing i was in a different environment i was incredibly unself-aware <laughs> and I was also you know we were all kind of that leadership team that in a crisis we were just kind of complaining and whining about leadership and I was right in the thick of it and you know when I got my ass fired it wasn't like there was a group of people that got laid off it was just one and it was me and that wow. was it and it was uh, mortifying like it is without a doubt the most humiliating experience you can possibly imagine to be marched out of the office and with all your belongings and but that's what happened <laughs> and to be honest like I think looking back I deserved it and and you learned maybe that the same things that had worked in other places couldn't be replicated every time that maybe you had to think of it a different way when you moved along definitely and I think the big thing I learned that I really has stuck with me for the rest of my life was when you don't know what you're doing you have to be vulnerable and ask for help and in this case I knew nothing about music retail and I was almost like I had that feeling that we often all do of I've been hired in this job and I've got to be able to prove that I was worth hiring. I've got to have the answers. But actually, if you don't have the answers, you have to say so and you have to ask. Yeah. And from that, you will learn and figure it out. Um, and that, yeah, that was a huge, huge learning for me, without a doubt. So I wonder, you know, I've talked to my podcast a lot about imposter syndrome and this idea that yeah. you can be highly achieving and successful and still have major doubts. And it's hard to reconcile that, which I think a lot of us feel, with still not wanting to ask questions because of the concern, particularly as a woman in a lot of male-dominated fields, mm-hmm. that revealing that you don't know something could be held against you in a way that is unfair but is realistic. Like, that that could happen even if what you're doing and what you're reaching out and asking for is necessary. Definitely. And I, I think it, particularly for women, it's the single hardest thing to overcome is, like, having the courage to sort of show that vulnerability and I think what I would say is that for me I have just done it enough to learn that it's actually the most powerful thing you can possibly do because when you tell someone that you don't know something and ask for their help they're almost immediately bought into your success because they're they're part of that solution with Mm -hmm. you and I can actually remember in a more recent job when I you know, started and my CFO actually was um, more experienced than me. He was older than me. He'd worked at many more companies than me. And I remember thinking, God, this guy is going to think I'm a moron because I don't know half the stuff that I need to because this is a new business and I need to make decisions. And one day I went in and just closed the door and I said, listen, I'm struggling with this, this and this. Can you help me? And I was terrified that he was going to think, you know, you're an idiot. 
and quite the opposite <laughs> happened. Like for the rest of my time in that job, I just had this incredibly trusted partner and I could go to him for anything. And even though he reported to me, he was mentoring me. And I think that's very, yeah. like, that's okay. It's very normal. You don't have to have all the answers. Nobody does. Yeah, absolutely. So you you do pretend to have all the answers in your, your new book, though, right? That's why we're going to buy it, <laughs> is that you're going to give us all of the answers to everything we're looking for in terms of stepping up, standing out, kicking ass, and repeating? Yeah, well, I would say, I, I don't know if I have all the answers, but I have culled together a lot of great advice and great inspiration and great research to really help people become the best version of themselves. And I think what led me to do it, honestly, was having had these experiences, like I, I just suddenly realized that it's not okay for the world to think that I have all these great successes and great accolades when in actual fact there's been really embarrassing humiliating screw-ups along the way because that's the stuff that young people need to know happens and it's okay for it to happen and so I set out to really I approached some incredibly successful people in the world and asked them to share the more vulnerable parts of their stories so that we could have a much more real conversation about what it takes to be successful on your own terms. Yeah, you know, there's something I think about achieving success at something that you've worked a great deal towards where you remember that you worked hard, but you can't necessarily access the parts of you that were incredibly negative or doubtful or weren't 100% sure you would ever make it. And so when you're trying to mentor people coming up, you know you were there at one point, but you're impatient with their concern because you're like, it's going to be fine. You know, like, and, and so I think it's, it's super useful to actually go back and try to revisit and try to mine yeah. your mind for those moments, because that will allow people coming up to say this failure that I've just had is not a career ender, or it doesn't mean that I'll never get to where I want to go. Totally. No, it's, it's funny, just about two or three weeks ago, I was giving a talk to some executive MBA students and we got to the whole thing about being fired and this guy comes up to me afterwards and he said, I've just been fired. And he said, I've got to be honest, I'm really struggling right now, like emotionally that I've, I've lost my mojo, you know? And it was so helpful to be able to have that conversation of that's a good thing. That means you're in the really difficult phase of growth. And that means you're on the right track. You're not in denial, you know, and this is what it should be feeling like. And I think you're totally right. To be able to go back and actually remember that these things have happened to all of us is pretty powerful. So what is this concept of extreme living? You describe it on your website as helping individuals, teams, and businesses unlock their potential by discovering their own uniquely exploitable traits. Yeah. So one of the things I really discovered through writing the book and through doing a lot of research is that I believe that a lot of people sort of go through life thinking that success is this magical thing that society or people senior to them have dictated what it looks like. And in actual fact, if you reframe that your perception from I'm trying to be successful and this sort of objective goal to I'm actually just trying to unleash every ounce of my own potential and I'm going to really dig in and figure out what is the most unique thing about me that makes me just shine and thrive, the output will ultimately be success, but you'll get there in a 
such sort of more fun and enjoyable way because you'll be playing the game on your own terms. And so really it's about, it's a whole book about like not editing yourself down and fitting into environments where you don't thrive, but instead really understanding what are your core skills? Where do you thrive? Where do you absolutely suck and be aware of it? (laughs) And what are the things that blow your hair back? What are your passions? What do you love? Like, how do you combine all of those things together in one place to be you playing at your absolute best? And that's really what Extreme Living is all about. Yeah, I just had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, a columnist for the New York Times, Carl Richards. And one of the things we happened upon was this discussion of whether your passion should drive what you do or whether what you're good at should drive you into discovering a passion. And that there is this great desire now to do something you love in a way that wasn't as common a couple generations ago where it was just about getting by, right? But because those generations did get by, they set other generations up to feel like there was more. And maybe even that Mm. they deserved more, that they deserved to do a job that they loved and follow your passion. But that that's really difficult for everybody because not everyone is really good at the thing that they love the most or is going to make money doing it. So I guess your approach is, yes, hopefully you're great at it and you find passion because of that, but that the more important thing is to start with what are you good at and what are your traits that will find that will lead you to being successful, I guess is not the word you want to use, but that's in the end, success is the, is the derivative of the, of the, the yeah. finding the thing that you're good at. For sure. And, and what I do think is like, I, I got really deep into this topic of what makes people passionate actually while I was in the process of writing the book. And I think what I learned more than anything is passion is made, not found. Um, you know, we, hmm. we have a lot of media saying, hey, go find your passion. It's like you can put it into a Google search and the you know, answer's <laughs> going to pop up. And in actual fact, when you really talk to people who are deeply passionate about what they do, they have spent hours grinding away at whatever it is to have so much knowledge and so much depth and just that is what leads to passion. And so I do think it's about figuring out what, you know, what you happen to be really good at. And then you got to get in there and just do the work. Cause I, I think one of the things that worries me in sort of the younger, you know, those coming into the workforce right now, there's this just huge shift towards job hopping, you know, like I took a job, I'm not passionate about it. So I'm going to jump within six months. And it's like, actually, right. I'm sure you're the same as me. Like some of the early days of my first job at Air New Zealand where I was doing just shitty grunt work was actually what helped me become really passionate about what I was ultimately doing. And it Absolutely. helped me learn yeah. incredibly important skills that I'm using today, you know. <laughs> and I worry that a lot of kids have been told you've just got to bounce around until you find your passion. And I just don't think that's how it happens. Well, and then that goes in turn with like, wanting to get to the end without doing the work on the way and wanting to be equipped with a certain set of skills that can only be learned by just doing those jobs that aren't as dramatic and fancy and and shiny as as the one that you eventually want, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, harder now because we do also have the challenge of seeing the lives of other people in social media, which are carefully curated, which are the best of the best, and you don't see... They're off days and they're and they're bad times and the grunt work. You only see the good stuff. And because of that, there's this desire to get to that without knowing everything that went into getting to that. Yes. 
I like could not agree more with everything you just said, and it really bothers me. Like this perfectly quaffed world that we're looking at is just not real. And I also think that for most people, certainly I spoke to who were you know very quote unquote successful, the feeling of success and fulfillment wouldn't exist if there wasn't a struggle that it took to get there. There's something mm-hmm. about like working really hard under your own steam, going after your own goals and eventually achieving them. And I think this is all connected to today's kind of instant gratification society as well. That really bothers me because if you just can get everything so easily, there's no struggle. I think the fulfillment on the other side is significantly less. And I think you end up with a lot of people feeling quite lost. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because there is an emptiness to a success that wasn't earned because then, then especially you'll have doubt about whether you're good enough because you'll know that you didn't do that much to get there. There's actually Mindy Kaling has a, has a section in her book where she talks about Mm. being asked um, by a young girl, like, how did you, you know, how do you have confidence to be who you are? And she said she gave a sort of lame answer because she was tired and it was the end of this long day and this long panel. Mm. And so she chose in her book to give a better answer. And the line that she said that I love is work hard, know your shit, show your shit, and then feel entitled. And that oh, if you wow. do yeah. the work, then you can yeah. feel entitled. Then it's yeah. not about empty confidence or having to convince yeah. yourself because you can look back and see all the moments that led to where you are and then yep. try to chop me down. Like, you know? Yeah. Totally. Because yeah. I earned it, for sure. Which is actually why it's a very good segue to why I cannot stand participation trophies. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> all of the research would say that these kids know. They're like, I know I didn't win anything. <laughs> it really devalues <laughs> what winning's all about. It's like they're not silly. And I think what Mindy said is perfect. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because, you know, with all due respect, I know that you said you weren't great at sports, but you love them. I was, and I don't like participation trophies because I should be the only one getting the trophies because I'm winning. Totally. But then you also, but you also think that, and you're the one who wouldn't be getting the participation trophy. You would be getting nothing, but you're okay with that. Definitely. It's so funny. Like with my poor kids, like they have to give them back. I won't let them take them. Oh no. Yes. I love that. Because I do. I feel really strongly. Like if you, did if you were good at sports and you did win them you earned it and if like the day that they actually do win something gosh the feeling of getting that trophy and putting yeah. it on your shelf is like one million times more valuable than yeah. kind of like stacking them up do you know i was going to tell you something really frightening the trophy industry in america is a three billion dollar industry oh my gosh is that oh not ridiculous gosh. and then you think about That's, all the people and not surprising <laughs> who can't even afford to play sports, like can't get access to sports, yeah. yet we're spending all this crazy money on trophies. It kills me. Yeah. Actually, in I think it might be her other book. I'm not sure. Mindy talks about how she won a trophy for like best dressed or best spirit at basketball camp, and her parents were like, no, we're not putting that anywhere. That means that you were the worst. <laughs> like they couldn't give you anything else. You had to be like most fashionable at a basketball camp. Like we're not putting that up. Um, that's so funny. Oh, funny. Um, so, you know, I there is this this like very hard slog of work that that gets you to where you are where you can bounce between these incredible companies and be president of Gatorade and president uh, of Equinox um and i wonder if you have an anecdote that would kind of share some of the slog where somebody who would be looking at your instagram and would see all these amazing things 
and wouldn't ever get the photo of this that you do mm. that's hard, that's from before or even now? Well, I'll start by saying one of my closest personal friends who cracks me up, he constantly Googles this one picture of me with really big hair right after I had one of my kids <laughs> when I got some, you know, article written about me because it's so embarrassing and he wants it to be at the top of the search engine when everyone Googles me. So <laughs> you can That's start there. Awesome. Um, That's awesome. But no, I mean, I would definitely say, like I think about, God, going years back now to when I was working with the team on the Gatorade turnaround. I mean, it was one of the hardest, most grueling challenges career-wise that I've ever had, probably will ever have. And yeah, I mean, we ended up with these great um, success stories because we did an incredible job turning this business around. But the Instagram picture that wasn't there was me in floods of tears in a corporate housing apartment away from my family, like, like so stressed out because I didn't know what we had to do <laughs> early on to turn the business around because it was in such crisis. So, yeah. and the funny thing is, I would say, you know, similar to what we've just been talking about is as grueling as that whole journey was, my God, when we succeeded, it felt good. <laughs> and yeah. for the team as a whole, it was just such a great epic victory because we had really worked hard to get there. And, and I do think it takes, you know, particularly in business in these days, it takes a lot of courage and resilience to keep driving growth, especially when, you know, the competition gets tough and your business turns and things don't go the right way. So it's important to have the, the strength to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have a husband and three kids that you just mentioned, and sometimes you're away from them. What's your idea of life balance, and how does that fit with the people that you call the extremers? And if you consider yourself one of them, how do you balance being an extremer with having life balance? Yeah, I mean, to me, ultimately being an extremer is just having a really great life and being very fulfilled and playing, you know, the game on your own terms and your own way. And for me, work-life balance is honestly about being able to integrate my family into what I do in a really fun way. I mean, I happen to love what I do and I work really, really hard. And it's funny, like I, I years ago went through periods of, you know, classic mother guilt of, you know, I work so hard yeah. and I'm not with the kids. But I actually believe that one of the greatest things I can do for my kids is see have them see me thriving with how much I love what I get to do every day. I think that's a great role model for a young person. And for me, like I, I'm in the business of fitness. Like what could be more fun? It's so awesome for me when I can bring my kids on a trip or to the office or to one of the studios or riding with me. It's It's just amazing how fun that can be. And so... I think for me, work-life balance is more about just how you integrate it all and you don't sort of have to keep them so separate that they're not part of one another. Right, and it feels like it would be a given that if you're working for a brand like Nike or Equinox and now you're the new CEO of Flywheel, that part of the job would be to be able to say, I can't meet this deadline because I have to work out today, right? But that totally. seems like a no-brainer, which doesn't actually mean that that's how the culture is. So how, when you take over a gig, and in this case, maybe a flywheel, are you able to say, in order for me to best do this job, I have to be a participant. I can't mm -hmm. 
lose that part of my life in order to do the work. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that has been a fundamental cultural pillar that, you know, I have sort of stated since the minute I got here is like, because we can't drive a meaningful business for other people around, you know, them having achieving their own fitness goals if we're not doing it ourselves and understanding it ourselves and understanding what really motivates us from a fitness sense. So I think it's just, for me, fitness and physical health and strength is just so foundational to absolutely everything you do. And I learned certainly earlier on in my career, particularly when I was having babies and, you know, was trying to balance stuff and just wasn't getting the balance very right. And those times when I neglected my physical exercise was inevitably the times that I started to burn out and just fell apart because I wasn't managing my own energy and my own time and just I was being pulled in too many directions. So I think physical fitness is just something that has to be prioritized before anything else can even begin for me. I wonder, um, you know, there's so many of us that, that... you know, have fitness goals or health goals and we bounce from one thing to the next trying to figure out what the fit is and what's going to make us joyful instead of dragging ourselves to do it. And you spoke at a recent ESPNW summit when you were with Equinox about finding those different technological ways to engage. Maybe we can learn from you because you've gone from Nike to Gatorade to Equinox to Flywheel. What have you carried over? How has being fully invested in one approach because it links to your job taught you, you know, what you actually need to get out of it. Because I know that I'll see you on Twitter and if it's Equinox, you're telling us your your run length and who you ran with from Mm -hmm. Equinox. Mm -hmm. And if it's Gatorade, you're telling us what you're fueling with. And if it's Flywheel, I'm sure you're telling us what music you like. So, but, but that's, that's, that's great for you because part of your job is to find out what works. But, um, then are you also finding out along the way which things remain constant and which things you say, eh, mm-hmm. maybe that wasn't for me? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And add into it, I'm on the board of Strava, so that's the oh. social network for athletes. <laughs> so I had to buy a bike go. last year. <laughs> um, but no, here's what I would say between all of them, and I have learned a ton actually, and I feel really lucky that I've been able to spend time with the scientists behind sports and fitness because that's where you learn the most but I think a it's just about being committed you have to stick with you know your fitness as I said before b it's about making sure you're getting multi-disciplinary exercise so whereas I used to be someone who just ran every day and that's all I did you know going to Equinox helped me to understand how important it was to be doing strength and stretching kind of workouts and mixing it up and likewise, even in the role I'm in now, it's the same thing. It's like we we try very hard to make sure people are doing their high intensity, their cardio, but you've also got to be stretching. And in our case, you know, we do bar workouts to give you that complimentary um, opportunity. Killer. <laughs> oh, killer. Like buzz of steel. Stabbing killer. pain. Um, just burning, yeah, stabbing, stabbing pain. pain. They're so good. Sure. So good, but so mid, good. Mid, midway through, you just want to murder everyone around you. You just want to die, <laughs> for sure. Yes. <laughs> um, so I do, I think all of those are the lessons that have remained true. And then for sure, when it comes to, you know, fueling, quote unquote fueling, I've definitely learned 
and I'm stuck with from the Gatorade experience, the importance of hydration, the importance of a good recovery. Like if you're going for a big 10-mile run, you've got to have your 20 grams of protein when you get back. I still do that today. So I think it's just all of it in in balance, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's so much conversation about um, we at ESPNW for a couple of years in a row, we were like at the summit, this is the year of the woman. Look at this World Cup win. Look mm. at this you know, amazing yeah. athlete. Look at Ronda Rousey. Then the next year would be like, we were wrong. This is the year of the woman. And it feels <laughs> like this year is not the year of the woman, mm. um, in large part due mm. to politics and a lot of choices that have been made that are negatively affecting or disrespecting women. Um, but if you look at someone like you and say, okay, nothing's holding back women. This woman's been president of some of the biggest corporations in the country. So what is it about you? And do you notice still in 2017 barriers to women in, in business? Or do you feel like somehow you've gotten past all that somehow? Yeah, it. I get asked this question a lot. And I often wonder if... Um... I, I was born in the first country in the world to give women the vote. Let's just start mm-hmm. there. And it does make me wonder if culturally... I saw the tile was... by Lake Wanaka. <laughs> yes, right? You did. Yes. I know exactly I what did. you're talking about. I took a photo of it. I was so happy. <laughs> it's so cool, right? It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do wonder if, therefore, culturally, I was raised in a society that sort of by definition, was a little bit ahead of the rest of the world in terms of women's um, abilities, empowerment, whatever it may be. But I do think, for me, I just it never occurred to me that being a woman made me different, less capable, or with barriers in front of me. And I think that might be what helped me in many respects, because I didn't have a mental block that because I'm a woman, I'm not going to be able to get from this place to that place. I kind of always would try and show up as I'm the best person for the job as opposed to I'm the right. best woman for the job, you know? And, and I think, I think that would probably be my biggest thought with everything going on right now is like, we just have to almost tune out some of this ridiculous um, banter that's going on and the kind of discussions that would indicate that we're going to go backwards as a gender and just yeah. keep storming forwards. Like, just don't take no for an answer. So one of the other things I talked to um, Carl Richards from the, the New York Times columnist about is a story that he wrote about ending the hashtag crush it era and allowing for the hashtag rested era. And that we as a, as a generation are this go, 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 never say no. If you don't hustle every second, you're missing out on an opportunity. Mm. Um, how do extremers, avoid the pitfalls of the hustle era, but still live an an extreme and great life. And I know you said it's more about a full life and fullness Mm -hmm. involves family and resting and free time. Um, But I think the very same people who are likely to achieve great success, part of that is work ethic and feeling like you can never stop. And I'm struggling with that. That's why I invited him on to talk to me about it, to do some personal therapy on my podcast. Um, So how do you approach that idea of how do I know when this is good hustle and when it's forced Mm -hmm. hustle? I think in the end, it's you have to use the filter of how does it make you feel? And I think maybe it's you know i'm getting older now <laughs> the one with the wrinkles in the in the picture and it's funny like i whereas i probably hustled even harder you know in my 20s and 30s i think now i'm much more aware of 
fast. Time is going so fast and you've got to yeah. make sure those moments are great moments. And and I think, you know, making decisions to slow down are good decisions if you're just kind of on that treadmill and it's not fun. And we've all been there. We've all had moments yeah. where the job is in control of us and we're not in control of the job. And so I think that would be my thought is that it, it has to ultimately be about what brings you great fulfillment and working just for the sake of working is definitely not going to be the answer. Yeah. So tell me, speaking of working, um, I'm a huge flywheel devotee because I have a million injuries and it's one of the few things that I can do without aggravating everything that's broken on me. So what do you have? And by the way, because you're an athlete, we, yes, and I'm competitive as hell. We really attract (laughs) competitive people. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what do you, when you take over something like that, that's obviously has a lot of success, but has certainly has a lot of um, competitors. uh, What's, Mm. what's on, on the docket for that brand? Yeah. A lot. I'm very, very excited by the opportunity because, I mean, boutique fitness in general is booming, but at its sort of total infancy, in my opinion, right now. And it's not unlike, I think, what happened back in the 90s where department stores started losing out to boutique retail. You know, it just started to switch over because people were looking for a much more specialized experience. And I think that's exactly what happens in a business like Flywheel, we attract really athletic, competitive people because of our offering. And we have a lot of opportunity, I think, to deliver even more to those people. Um, And so not surprisingly, we're looking at how do you extend it from, you know, a bricks and mortar experience to a streaming experience so that you can access it anywhere. How do we add other kinds of fitness to the mix? Because we know that's what people like you are looking for. So it's exciting. I'm really, really fired up about um, the opportunity because for sure the health and wellness, health and wellness trend is not slowing down. Yeah, for sure. Before I let you go, you have to do the thing that everyone does. You know what time it Ooh. is, Allie. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, that's right, the Spanish Inquisition. The questions I asked all of my guests... Number yeah. one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Uh, the natural talent I wish I was gifted with. Oh, God, that's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> I'd say um, probably like singing, you know, being able to perform in a. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a, like the number singing. one for everybody, for sure. Yeah. Is it really? Um, yeah, almost everybody says that. Yeah. I think everyone has visions of being a rock star or totally, Adele yeah, or, for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. My Desert Island album would probably be uh, the best of Split Ends. That I don't even know Split Ends. That's from New Zealand. I'm going. Way I'm missing them out. Huh? On you. All yeah. right, I'm gonna, I'm going to look them up after this. Um, number three if you could switch lives with someone for a day who would it be Hmm. Uh, I could switch lives Uh, maybe my mum actually interesting yeah why is that (laughs) just because I think that she I would love to have seen being a woman in a very different era I mean my mother 
was a total ass kicker, right? But she <laughs> came of age in an era when she had to choose between a husband and a career. Like when she met my father, there was not an option. Like they said, you either get married or you leave, yeah. you know. And I'm just so curious to see what that would have felt like in those days, you yeah. know, to, to have different options and to have done, For sure. ha- had to have done different things. That's interesting. My mom's a total ass kisser too, but ass kisser, ass kicker, ass kicker, kicker, not ass kisser, ass kicker too. And I think she's probably just a couple years younger than your mom to the point where she was, oh, oh, she was able to met my father in law school and they started a practice together and she, you know, so she could do all those things. And she's exactly the example of what you talked about earlier, which is Mm. that just by being who you are, you're doing the best by your kids because it made me be like, all right, I can do anything I want because she's doing it. Um, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? I would say, uh, when I was doing a, um, mountain climbing exercise called a via ferrata in, um, the Dolomites in Italy. (laughs) And I really do have a fear of heights when I'm like, you know, (laughs) and we were sort of attached to the side of a mountain and it still pisses me off to this day that I actually had to go back down. I couldn't handle it. I've got to overcome it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's the worst when you actually, like, you cannot overcome something in your mind. Yeah, I, and it's completely irrational, and I know it's irrational, and I, I, I it, yeah. it bothers me. I've got to go back and try again. <laughs> I try to be, like, much more forgiving of people for things that I think are stupid like that, because yeah. I just have to remind myself that I'm, I'm claustrophobic. Like, if I think oh, wow. about being in, like, a, in, like, a, like a hole in the ground. Like when I think about people in in the war burying in holes, that makes me feel ill. Yeah. yeah. Like just awful. And so I try to think of that when I make fun of other people for being afraid of heights or scuba diving or whatever else, you know, it, it, it's hard to overcome something that you have no control over like that. Um, number five, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? I'd say my drive, I think. Like, I just am a very, like, naturally driven person. Like, I just love going for it. And I feel like I have this little engine inside me that's like magic. (laughs) It just pushes me along. (laughs) Yeah. And number six, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, God, where do you, there's so much. <laughs> I mean, oh my, I, I could do with not having giant man-sized feet. That would be a great start. Cause then, well, you know, then I can really, actually... Really slowed you down, do. huh? Yes. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and finally, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, energetic. Um, giving and loads of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow it. It's not three words, but I'll allow it because you used a curse word. <laughs> Thank you so exactly. much for making time for me. I always love chatting with you. I developed yes, the massive girl fun. crush on you years ago, and I love watching you continue to bounce around to different places and do big things. So, no, um, I've had a blast. Keep, Great to reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been awesome. Oh, and another thing. 
So if you guys want to check out Sarah Rob O'Hagan's book, it's just been released by HarperCollins. It's called Extreme You, Step Up, Stand Out, Kick Ass, Repeat. Uh, you can find it on bookshelves and obviously online. I highly recommend it. I haven't read it yet, but um, based on all of my experiences with her and, of course, that conversation, um, you can see that she is a wealth of information. It's called, once again, Extreme You by Sarah Rob O'Hagan. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.